Welcome to Theology Unplugged. We are back talking about sin, talking about imputed sin, inherited sin, and personal sin, and the difficulties that come with that. I'm doing with JJ and Sam. And uh, again, Tim is not with us this time, but he will be back sometime. We did not run him off, I do not think. JJ, you had lunch with him or hung out with him yesterday and yeah, he's, he's, just, uh, he's, he's okay. off wrestling with imputed, inherited, and personal sin. Yeah, he, he just heard about this subject and did not want to talk about mm. it. It felt it felt too close, too yeah. personal. Yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, last time I ended with a difficulty that uh, uh, I think both of you guys thought we'd closed out on, but uh, I, I had to extend on it a little bit because I was talking about Pelagius's problem with imputed sin, the idea that we're held guilty, the gavel has been struck for every individual upon conception because of Adam's sin, and we are held guilty directly for Adam's sin. And the passages that uh, I referred to were from were from Ezekiel and from Jeremiah, where it talks about in the Old Testament, people were were acting as if the, their problems and their condemnation and their their uh, uh, the the issues that they have in their own life are because of what their fathers did, and they're getting punished for it. And the phrase becomes so common. We find it both in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel. And did you say you found it somewhere else, JJ? Yeah, it's in it's in Lamentations uh, five seven as well. But I wonder if if what's uh, the phrase. Um, well, the fathers. It's referenced in, in Lamentations five seven. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. But not the proverb is in Ezekiel eighteen two, right? Is that right? Yeah. yeah. The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. But I'm afraid that maybe we're even framing it wrong because my sense is that they're not complaining about something as much as just stating sort of an, an experiential reality. You know, Lamentations 5 says, remember, O Lord, what's befallen us. Look and see our disgrace, right? So these are people who are experiencing God's judgment on them as his nation. And and so in a sense, verse 7, our fathers sinned and we bear their iniquities. Like it really is happening, right? When Israel sins, they get sent into exile and then their children are born in exile. And in that sense, the children are suffering for their parents' sins. Well, can we can we be held and, guilty? Can I be held guilty for the sins of my father? See, and that's what's interesting. I don't think I think we're asking a question that those passages aren't trying to answer. What they're saying is, this is what it's like to live in a theonomy, and this is the result of being sent into exile and punished. But someday, when I make a new covenant and I reconstitute the people of God as no longer being geographical. Uh, and ethnic, then it's not going to function like that anymore. You're each going to be disciplined for your own sin. But uh, as, but, as but Mike, let me answer your question. Buy that? Do you buy that? Yeah, too? I think it's. I think you got a good point. But back to Michael's question, the answer is no. You're not guilty or accountable before God. God's not going to hold stand you in front of the great white throne judgment. And say, no, Michael. Um, in uh, 1974, 
uh, when your dad was, you know, in his early twenties or whatever, here's something that he did. And I'm going to punish you because of it. Of course not. That that's not what the Bible teaches, but your relationship to your father is not the same as the relationship of all mankind to Adam, because your dad was not the representative head um, of you or of anyone. Um, and Adam, however, was in fact a covenant representative head of the totality of the human race. So there's a uniqueness to that re- arrangement that you don't find elsewhere in Scripture. See, and again, that's so important because I think these Old Testament passages are being tortured to say things they don't say. Lamentations 5.7, our fathers sinned and are no more and we bear their iniquities. The very next sentence, namely, slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. When he means we bear their iniquities, we suffer the consequences sure. of their sin. Well, well yeah, I mean, yeah. you got a, let's say you got a man who's an alcoholic or he's addicted to gambling or whatever, and he drives his family into bankruptcy, and he sets in motion a pattern of life from which it might take several generations to emerge. I mean, they incur his debt. They've seen his patterns of behavior. Um, there's animosity that is, uh, exists in between family members and between generations. So can we suffer the consequences of the sins of our ancestors? The answer is absolutely yes. Just not the condemnation. Right. Which so, is, so which what is, about, what about a crack baby? What about a, a little baby that's conceived in the womb of a woman who's been smoking crack her whole life and he's born addicted and that happens all the time. Well, he's yeah. suffering consequences for her sin, but God isn't. God isn't angry at the baby because he's born addicted. Well, is that the passage in the Old Testament, uh, in the, and I think it's in Exodus, where it says that um, he shall visit the sins upon generation after generation? What, what passage is that? I didn't even have that. It's in marked. Exodus chapter 20. It's part of the Ten Commandments. But since you brought it up, I'm glad you did because people really abuse and misunderstand this. Um, let, let's listen to this. If I can find it here. Exodus chapter 20. Yeah, here it is. To fill the silence. It's the very opening verses. He says, uh, you shall not bow down to them, talking about false gods, or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So... The only reason why um, he visits the iniquity on the third and the fourth generations is because they hate me. Hmm. So it's personal accountability here. It's not saying, well, my great-great-grandfather hated God, and therefore God's punishing me for it. No, he's only punishing me for it if I also hate God. Yeah, and so the idea is the same type of thing to where if you were born into a Christian family, you are— uh, you have a better chance of becoming a Christian than you do if you're born in the Middle East into a Muslim family. You have a better chance of not being a Christian. And so those that hate me, there is the consequences in the sense of the the the, the difficulties that arise, right? Yes. Let's come back to Pelagius because I, I fear that um, – it, it, this may sound like a shocking statement, but a vast majority – of our society, and even many within the Christian church, even though they don't know it, are Pelagian. Hmm. Pelagius was asked, how do you account for the fact that we commit acts of sin? And he rejected Augustine's view of both imputed and inherent sin. And he said, well, the reason why we sin is because people before us have set a bad example and we follow it. So 
if you asked him, what's the relationship between Adam's sin and that of his posterity? And, and Pelagius would say, Adam set a bad example, uh, and we have chosen to imitate it. Now, here's a problem, and we ra- I raised this same point in the, in the earlier podcast that we did, or broadcast. Um, w- that doesn't account for the universality of sin. Why is it everywhere present in every human being? Are we explain to me, Pelagius, why every single human being that preceded us, including Adam, always set a bad example? And why does every human being who follows them follow the bad example? Yeah. Why, why, if there's nothing in us, in us in, inherently, intrinsically, kind of as JJ said before, our spiritual DNA. We're conceived in sin. We are at odds with God. We are born in with uh, going forth from the womb speaking lies. If there's nothing beneath the surface of external relationships, why is it that everybody sets a bad example, and why is it everybody follows it? Yeah, because it doesn't, be doesn't ex- solve the problem. Even if there wasn't some inner inclination with Pelagius, there's this outer inclination that does push us no matter what. And it's unfair to be born in a society where everybody is a bad example. To have true neutrality, you would have to have neutral examples. Well, Or everybody would have to be his own Adam. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, standing his own probation in his own private without any meeting. without any snake or without anything that uh, is pushing him in one direction or another. Well, and of course, as with every persuasive lie, there's a sprinkling of truth. There is an environment in which we sin that does tempt us to sin further and exacerbates our sin. You know, it's sort of like kids playing with matches on the carpet in the living room and their parents walk in and instead of saying, don't do that, you could burn the house down. They say, oh, let me go get some gasoline out of the garage and help. So, you know, we were born into sin, uh, we like to sin, we we're inclined to sin, and then, and then we had parents and, and neighbors, and we grew up in an environment where we were also taught how to sin even better and more frequently and with greater creativity. Well, let me bring these up are, an These op- are the old categories of the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? I've got my own problems, you know, my flesh. I've got this enemy who's lying in wait to uh, entice me, and then I also have this environment that I'm born into that is also tempting me and exacerbating the problem. Let me try to represent our listeners a little bit, maybe the problems that come up, especially from last broadcast that uh, we, we talked about being born or conceived, condemned. And uh, I think probably a lot of them are thinking, are you saying that if a baby dies in its mother's womb or dies shortly after birth, that that baby is conceived and and born and condemned and therefore has no chance of redemption. I mean, I know that this is a big topic to no. I try to answer the answer to that is no. Let's just try to answer that quickly, though. Yeah. I mean, why is it then? Well, that, Augustine's uh, opponents used to try to entrap him with that, right, and yeah. show why his views were so awful because it was like he had to bite the bullet and say, "Well, I think then they probably are lost." But and, and some people do them. bite the bullet and All say, right, "Here's, that a, people shame, are here's lost. a shameless personal plug." I wrote an, a chapter on this in my first volume uh, on tough topics, or maybe it's the second volume. I can't even remember now. Maybe people just need to get both volumes. Yeah, there you go. Just to be safe. Tough yeah, topics. just to be safe. Tough topics by Sam yeah. Storms. And uh, I asked the question, are those who die in infancy saved? And I argue that they are, but not because they're innocent. And that's important to point out. I, I do believe that those who die before they have been able to cognitively understand and make a morally responsible volitional decision, if they die prior to that, that they are, in fact, um, among the elect 
and taken by God into his presence in heaven. I don't believe that's because they're innocent. I believe it's because God in his mercy um, has chosen to do that. And I give numerous reasons, and I interact with the biblical text on that subject. So, And so they still have to have the imputation yeah, of Christ's righteousness. Have, right. They have to have the blood of Christ that covers them. Exactly. Hmm. Okay. Let me. Uh, you got to at least mention Second Samuel twelve twenty three, right? That's always encouraging. Or well, where it's David, a hint. It's a hint of something. Yeah, encouraging. yeah. When uh, the the firstborn of David and Bathsheba dies uh, soon after birth, um, you know David wouldn't eat and he wouldn't bathe and he wouldn't be consoled until such time, as long as the baby was alive, because he said, "Who knows? Maybe the Lord will have mercy and spare him." Well, when the baby finally dies. He says that David got up and he cleaned himself and he ate. And they said, well, what's going on? He said, well, he said, um, while the baby was still alive, I had hopes that it could live. But now that it's dead, I can't do anything about it. Um, uh, he can't come back to me, but I will go to him. Hmm. And the suggestion is that David seems to have drawn some measure of comfort from that, the confident hope that he's going to be reunited with his child. Yeah. Now, the problem, obviously, is, okay, that's one case can you extrapolate that and apply it universally to all instances of infant Yeah, because the Bible doesn't really speak specifically toward this. We take passages like that, which could mean I will go to him in his grave. Nah, uh, he nah, will not come back to me. Because, here, let me, let me, because he gained encouragement. Well, yeah, yeah. He, he was really encouraged, and he seems to have re- regained his joy from the knowledge that he was going to be reunited with him. But for David to say, look, I'm going to die and be laid in the ground just like my son— How's that a source of encouragement and joy? That that doesn't make that's so blatantly obvious. Well, of course you're going to die and be put in the grave. That doesn't seem to make much sense. Well, as we're talking about imputed sin and the difficulties of imputed sin, I know that whenever you're looking at it from an apologetic standpoint, meaning defending the faith and looking at people from the outside, and they look at this and they they reduce Christianity to the absurd by bringing up things like this and an eternal hell and God in the Old Testament and many, many things, but this is one of them. You're going to have to, you, you want me to adopt this idea that we are born sinners, that we have uh, a, a sinful condemnation from the beginning. And the problem with that obviously has to do with many things beside, you know, the option is not between that and atheism, like we can choose what we want God to be like. There will be difficult doctrines that we all accept because God said it's true, and we have to trust, like Sam said before, that in the last broadcast, we have to trust that God is merciful and that he is more merciful than us, and that he knows what he's doing, and that he is righteous, and the condemnation of whoever gets condemned will be a righteous condemnation. It will not be something that we are above him, and as we attempt to judge God, uh, he will always prevail when he is judged. And And we often try to judge him and put him on the stand and say, give account for yourself. C.S. Lewis's famous phrase, right? We put God in the dock. And then we have to ask ourselves, what am I doing? You know, we're following God around as he draws straight lines and we're calling him to account with a crooked ruler. Yeah. Um, so there's something presuppositional here. We have to ask is our ability to assess the Almighty, isn't it, isn't it possible that it itself is inherently flawed? Yeah. And you know, let me come back. You mentioned the apologetic uh, dimension to this. Uh, and I've had, I've, I've spoken with uh, a- professing atheists and unbelievers who object to the idea 
that we're talking about here, the notion of imputed and inherent sin. And so I push back and I say, all right, let's, let's go with your explanation for why sin is universal. Let's just deal with the empirical reality that all mankind are sinful. All mankind commit heinous, selfish, uh, blasphemous acts of immorality and idolatry. If you're not willing to accept the biblical explanation for why sin is universal, please give me yours. Hmm. And the point, again, that I mentioned in the previous broadcast was when you have a universal effect, you need a sufficient cause to account for it. It's not just like sin erupts spontaneously in the hearts of billions of humans who've lived on this earth. There has to be some sort of um, a cause, some some explanatory reality that accounts for the universality and the pervasive nature of personal sin. So what is yours? If you refuse to accept the biblical explanation, give me yours. I really like that, Sam, because it seems to be very savvy in this sort of late modern era. Some people call it post-modernity, but you know, as, as late moderns, um, where irony and cynicism reign and, and sort of we're good at, at deflating self-righteous people, our culture sort of gets that, the sort of hip- tendency for human hypocrisy and puffery. So what a wonderful way to engage them where they're at and say, come on, you've been spending all of your time deflating people who are self-righteous narrators who pretended to sort of have insight into everything and have all the answers. So so you can agree with me that that we're flawed, but, but how did we get this way? Well, and even whenever you get yeah. to the answer and you say, because I want to do what I want. I want to be happy. I want to, sin makes me happy. I mean, even Plato recognized back many, many years ago, the philosopher and said, you know what? To be happy means to do good. That's the way to be happy. And that people are looking for satisfaction in life. And they know that if they do good, that's the most satisfying way to live life. And so even unbelievers recognize that that it's better to give than to receive. It's better to to compliment rather than to tear down, to build rather than than destroy. And and people find that living a life of sin is totally destructive. Why do we still do it then, even though we know what what's good is is more fulfilling and and will help us to not only live longer but just be happier? Yeah, and if we if this was an apologetics broadcast. You know, you just hit on another point. Not only must the unbelieving world account for the universality of sin, but it must also account for the universality of a sense of virtue. Mm-hmm. Why is it that there is commonly held um, among all people certain moral principles as being obligatory on us all? Where did that come from? Now, I want to shift gears, Michael. Let's right here. I know it's kind of a jolt. Let's talk about personal sin. Well, wait a minute. Can we? Can we not yet? I want to know. I want to answer the question: Are all sins equal in the sight of God? Okay, well, let's, wait, wait. let's say that. I got to slip in one great quote from G.K. Chesterton first. Ah, all right. He was always famous for saying, "Original sin is the only part of Christian theology which can theology which can really be proved." Which I always thought was funny. <laughs> yeah. Well, well so listen to this. The least popular doctrine, and the irony is, as Sam was pointing out, it's in a sense really the easiest one to get them to agree to from their own empirical observations of living in a world full of fallen people. Well, Sam, we do need to get to that for sure. With uh, or with uh, personal sin, and are all sins equal? But listen to this. I want to give you guys an explanation, and this comes from. I think Saint- it's sinful that you're not taking my hint at what direction we should go, and I think uh, it's it a is, greater it sin is. than my sin of insisting that we do it. It, it is, further, but this, further is further. this seems more satisfying right now. 
Um, All right, you're the boss. Go for it. Let's go with uh, St. Thomas Aquinas and his explanation. And it's a the, believe me, uh, what I'm doing is I'm doing a fringe thing. You know St. Thomas Aquinas. He he answers fringe questions. I mean, he's the angelic doctor. He's he's asking questions that that are are so far out there so many times. The dumb that, ox. Yeah. He was called the dumb ox. A- he was it, brilliant, but he was rather uh, heavy and lumbering in his walk, and so some people nicknamed him. Well, listen to this. One of the times he was asked the question about, what, or he asked the question in his uh, diatribe, why is it that God did not save the angels? And he said this. He said, well, in order to save the angels, that would be impossible. The reason why it'd be impossible is because angels is not a species. Angels do not procreate. And so, therefore, they are not connected to one another. In order to save the angels, since they were created individually, not procreated, and are not a species, but are a species in and of themselves, he would have to become each individual angel and die for that angel. Therefore, there was no way for Christ to redeem the species called angels. Now, connected to this is his understanding of why it is that he was able to save mankind. Mankind, and this is this is the idea of maybe imputation is an issue of grace rather than an issue of just saying God's being vindictive and and and, and condemning people. But because we are linked by imputation, because we are linked spiritually, because we are a race not only based upon biology um, and, and uh, procreation, but because we are linked spiritually and we have been imputed and connected with the federal head, Adam, that Jesus could come and die for the entirety of the human race or die for the elect, whichever one you take there. But he he basically says that that's the reason why it was we were linked with Adam is so that we could be linked with Christ. What do you guys think of that? I just want to know how many of these unsaved angels can dance on the head of a pin. That's the only <laughs> thing that matters, isn't it? I think it's a brilliant bit of speculative philosophy, very in keeping with his personality inclination. But, but it, it's it, to talk again about imputation. It's what we've already been saying. We can get that out of Romans five. You know, we don't need to to talk about angels. It's like, yeah, the very thing that causes the plague to spread may also be the very way in which the antibodies can. Be isolated to create the cure. Yeah. So you're suggesting. So you're suggesting, then, Michael. Obviously, because I know our listeners are probably wondering. So you're saying Satan was not the representative federal head of the angels. That's he, right. He did not stand in their place, and his sin was not imputed or reckoned or passed on to them because they do not propagate or procreate. And we do know that Satan was the first one to fall, and he then enticed who knows how many angels to follow him in his rebellion. Maybe that was but more were the Pelagian indivi- view of angels. Yeah, they were, those were all individual acts of transgression and idolatry. They were not somehow connected by covenant to Satan. That's right. So we are connected by covenant to Adam so that we can be connected by covenant to Christ, which in my mind, even though it's very speculative from the standpoint of angels and the comparison is like JJ said, from the standpoint of Romans chapter five, it makes sense. Maybe the imputation of Adam's sin, though necessary being the federal head is a point of 
of redemption, the ability for us to be redeemed because we are fallen with Adam. If we fell individually, given the chance, we would all fall. If everybody had their own chance and were born neutral, we would all fall, but Christ could not redeem us all. But since we are connected to that federal head, Christ could redeem us. Well, it it is fascinating. Romans 5 clearly says that the that the destiny of the human race hangs suspended on the actions of two individuals, the first Adam and the last Adam. You could almost presumptuously say, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, because that happened, so one act of righteousness can lead to justification for all men. But we will answer the question, are all sins equal in the sight of God? Will we not? We will. Can't get enough of Theology Unplugged? Ready to take your theological training to the next level? Hi, I'm Michael Patton. The Credo House Members Area is your exclusive hub for theological training. Sign up for a free basic or premium trial and check it out today. Inside, you're going to find 28 theological training courses, 190 video sessions on topics from the Crusades to atheism to eschatology, over 50 PDF downloads, and certificate courses with hundreds of quiz questions to test your mettle. It's all part of the Credo Members area. Plus, your membership helps Credo House create more high-quality training for the church. Join us and help push back the intellectual darkness. Oh yeah, did I mention you can sign up for free? Visit credohouse.org and check it out today. 